welcome to another episode of Only the Brave Have Fun. And today's guest is Michael Tobin. Michael is a highly successful serial entrepreneur and a pioneer with over 30 years experience in telecoms and technology sector. He led uh, Telecity Group PLC, a leading FTSE 250 technology company from 2002 to 2014, transforming the company from a £6 million market cap in 2002 to being a top performer in the FTSE 250 with over £2.5 billion. In 2014, he was honoured with an OBE for his services to the digital economy. Let's welcome Michael. Thank you for accepting my invitation to come on. No problem, no problem. So it took a while to get it to happen. No problem at all. I was uh, just looking at your um, TED talk. Mm -hmm. uh, very, very interesting and very interesting methods of uh, getting people to the edge of their seats. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's, um, you know, you've, got to, you've got to find slightly alternative ways of doing things these days because the, uh, the boring stuff doesn't work anymore. Absolutely. Going through your, uh, through your journey, um, it was very, very difficult to pinpoint where to begin from because you've had a very interesting up until now, very interesting journey. So I wanted to, for the people that don't know you, what would you say you do? So it's generally sort of three things. It's um, uh, entrepreneur, philanthropist, and um, on the website it says maverick as well. So I guess that probably should fit in there. But obviously, I write books, I do public speaking, but mainly, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm invested in around uh, 20 odd assets at the moment on the board of 17 of them. So I guess entrepreneur first and then philanthropist second. Awesome. So, so what's been, uh, um, just, just to take a little bit further back, where did your actual journey begin of um, entrepreneurship? And you said, that's, that's what I want to do. That's my thing. Or was it an evolution over time? I think, I think you know, everyone wants to make money and wants to be successful in some form or another. So, um, you know, right from doing an apprenticeship because I didn't want to go to, to university, I wanted to get out and make money straight away. And then, you know, the moment I finished my apprenticeship, moving into a, into a role in London, getting into, into whatever I could and, and eventually sort of moving around Europe, setting up businesses and coming back and get, getting very lucky, finding the right, you know, right roles at the right times. And then uh, when I sold Telecity, so we, we picked that up for about six million pounds in 2002, and we sold it in 2015 for 3.6 billion. And then I didn't really want to sort of do a day job anymore. So I decided to, I had lots of ideas of things to do, which didn't fit one specific role. So I said, okay, well, if I can go out and convince people like private equity to do um, specific investments and get it and get a slug of the equity, then, you know, I feel that I'm good enough to find the right assets. So, you know, we started to do that back in 2015 and picked up a business in South Africa, for example, and we sold that in March this year for 14 times money. You know, with Carlisle, we bought a business in Spain and we sold that for 17 times money in two years. So, you know, it's, it's been very, um, very lucrative, but I just like the ability to to be flexible in what I do rather than be stuck in one role. And I didn't know whether I was going to like that or not until I tried it. So I'm, I'm very happy it's worked out well. What, what do you look for when, you, when you're working with a business or working with a partner? And how do you say, okay, this is the project for me. I'm going to work on that. So I, I look for disconnects of, of understanding of, of value. So, you know, for example, there could be a really good business that's starved of capital. That's the easy one for private equity to get comfortable with. But then there's also businesses that 
perhaps we're a little bit ahead of their time. I mean, typically in technology, we massively overestimate the uptake of new technologies within a, within a three, year, three to five year period. Right. We massively underestimate them in a, in a 12 to 15 year period. So, you know, sometimes businesses are, have found themselves, rather than being leading edge, they're bleeding edge. And that's not a good place to be for a period of time. So, you know, when, when, when there's good businesses or good management teams, good ideas, but maybe just the wrong timing or the wrong market or, or in new geographies. So for example, I'm just um, acquiring a business in, in Nigeria. And, you know, a lot of people sort of think Nigeria is a, as, as too high a risk of, of a market, but, you know, there's a massive demographic of people that have leapfrogged technology and, you know, there's no way that, that it's not going to be a massive market for certain parts of technology, technology industry. So, so making sure that, you know, the courage is there along with the, 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 the financial muscle and the, and the expertise of, of, of helping these guys typically run a business. Right. And, uh, I mean, you do a lot of uh, training on leadership and speaking on leadership as well. Um, I, I remember, was it um, one of the guys in the Shark Tank? Um, I do a lot, watch a lot of Dragon's Den and, and Shark Tank. And he said, when I acquire a new company, the first thing I do is I fire, um, I fire the CEO. Because um, that's where the problem awesome. lies. <laughs> well, well, you know, I think that's that's um, that's I think that's a little generic because, um, as I said, I've just highlighted a few examples where yeah. where businesses might have a really good management team, but are just starved yeah. of of capital, or or also they're you know they they've been um, they've been ahead of the game, and you know sometimes uh, an entrepreneur, uh, i.e., a founder of a business, is not necessarily the best person to run it, and that that can often be the case. But I think just to have that as a standard positioning um, that you go into a business with, I think that's probably a bit, bit harsh. Right. Everyone's good at something. You know, you've got to find what, they, what people are good at, right? So sure. nobody into the, into the office in the morning and says, I'm going to really try to screw up my business today. I mean, that, that's just, you know, they don't do that. They come in and say, how can I make this better than it was yesterday? And, and, and some people just don't have the skill sets. And you can either train them or reposition them. But sooner or later, you know, you're going to find something that these people are very good at and you're going to find, you're, you're always going to find a better person for every job as well. So, you know, it's, it, sometimes it's not about having perfection. It's about constant improvement. I mean, look what, you know, back in the day when, when Windows NT came out, there's the big new launch of Windows and, and then you have to suffer all the pain until there's a massive new launch of the next Windows. And nowadays you get an update every week and it just constantly improves the software. And, you know, people kind of live with the fact that there's errors in it and, and, and bugs because they know that they'll eventually get worked out. But if you try to wait for that, you miss the mark. So, so I think, you know, people are the same. You know, you, you, can, you can take attributes. We all have faults as well as attributes. And you take the attributes, put them in the right place, try to improve them. And the faults, well, you know, you either, you either kind of rectify them by surrounding those people with other people that, that help them. Sometimes, sometimes you need to get rid of them. You seem like um, a sort of very driven person. You, I remember when doing some research, you spent 11 years in, in France, that was to uh, build business. And, and you started at the age of 16, you joined uh, Rockwell as an electronics uh, apprentice. Yeah. Uh, do you think that was a catalyst in, in really setting you up? Um, do, do you feel someone looking to move into apprenticeship would be uh, going a bit old school into straight away as soon as efficient, instead of going to a job, go into an apprenticeship or work with someone, a mentor or a coach, and then, you know, start something of your own. 
Well, I think, I think the first thing to think about in this case is that we've gone too far down the road um, of the be all and end all of education ends up with a degree. And, you know, I, I think that for too long apprenticeships, um, whether that's in electronics or electricians or plumbers or, you know, all sorts of apprenticeships that we can get now, they've been seen as an alternative to higher education, right? And, and they shouldn't be seen as an alternative to higher education. They should just be seen as an alternative higher education. So instead of someone having an academic value, they have a, a vocational value. And, you know, what we, what we find is that, you know, with, with this need, apparent need of everyone to, to finish, you know, go to university and finish university with a degree, and not everyone's, you know, got the, got the academic acumen to get a sort of a, a degree in economics or maths. So they end up getting a, a relatively useless degree in, I don't know, underwater basket weaving or something ridiculous like this, where, where they come out and wonder where the job is afterwards. And of course, there's no job. So, so then it's a wasted environment, whereas those people are probably fantastic in another way. They're probably fantastic with their hands or, you know, they, they can, you know, they can do really good things in a slightly different non-academic way. And yet we, we sort of frown upon that. And yet, you know, you try and, you try and build, you know, try and do any renovations in a house or build a house and you'll never get a, a plumber or, a, or an electrician. You know, they're always incredibly expensive and really hard to find because we don't value those skills anymore. So I think, I think you know, the, the first thing we need to do and, and in, in this country is recognize that apprenticeships are just as good as an academic sort of go to university and learn maths, but for different types of people. Then, you know, apprenticeships are sort of the school of hard knocks, right? You're learning on the job rather than having the theory part of it and then going out into the world and doing the, 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 the application based. So, so for me, it was a way of, you know, when I did an apprenticeship, I worked in, in, in the finance department, I worked in quality assurance, I worked in repairs, I worked on the shop, on the shop floor on, you know, sitting there for three months, just putting screws into a, into a device, you know, and, and, and then you start to understand how people's, you know, what people's drivers are in different roles. And, and, it, and it, you know, you create empathy with people and you also understand how different parts of the business integrate together. So I think it was incredibly valuable to me without me realizing how, value it was, how valuable it was at that point. Right, wow. And um, what, what was some of the highs in your careers that you thought, and then some of the lows? Well, I think, you know, buying, buying, buying a business for six million and taking it private and consolidating an industry and creating effectively what we all use as the base of the internet um, in Europe and then selling it for 3.6 billion was, was, a, was a great journey. It was a 12... 12, 13 year journey, which um, had its highs and lows within it. And, and to be honest, you know, I, I would say that if anyone tells you their success is anything to do with more than 10% effort and 90% luck, I would disagree with them. I think it's, you know, it, you get so much luck in life. And the challenge is, how do you take advantage of it? And, you know, I'll give you one example with, with, um, with Telecity. We were burning, we were burning about 2.4 million pounds a month. Um, and there was nothing we could do to stop the burn. I closed as many sites as I could, but we had one that was opening in the Czech Republic. And I went out there and, and this big data center was sitting there and, and, all, and we had the, the, the British ambassador to the Czech Republic with a you know, ribbon cutting ceremony. And, and all I could see was another quarter of a million pound a month burn. And we had basically no money left. We had about a month's money left in the bank. And I left that opening ceremony, come back to the UK and I thought, that's it. You know, we, we, we're, we're toast. 
And um, I was desperately trying to find new investors, um, just didn't have the time to find them. And the, as we left Prague, we took off. I remember it was a very stormy day and it was quite a bumpy ride. And when we landed back in London, the, there was heavy rains in Prague and the rains carried on. And two days later, the Danube burst its banks and our data center was completely flooded, right up six meters of water and totally, totally flooded. And immediately I got on the phone to the insurers and said, this is insured for 50 million pounds, which is the cost that, uh, that we'd, we'd spent on it to build it. I said, I, you can have it all. Just give me 8 million now and I'm out of here. And we cut a deal within three days and that 8 million pounds gave me another four months to find new investors. And that's how we managed to keep the company alive. And so had it not rained in Prague, there would be no, there would be no sort of great story to tell about this. So, you know, luck plays a tremendous amount in success and, uh, you know, it should not be underestimated. And, and there's a chap called Gotha who's widely acclaimed um, to have uh, written in his latter years about um, chance and luck and how until we make decisions about, you know, if you're sitting there um, sort of saying, oh, you know, should I, should I do this or shouldn't I? If I do it, there's a lot of risk. And if I don't do it, there's no risk, but I don't progress. You know, only when you decide wholeheartedly to do something do you find that chance starts playing a role, right? And things will happen that you could never have imagined to happen that helps you on your way. And, you know, you can't plan that, which is why my first book is called Forget Strategy, Get Results, because, there's, you know, you can have a vision about where you want to go, but, you know, you try and plan it and, and things happen that mess up your plans instantly. You know, we have um, a great saying from Jean-Paul Sartre, which says, uh, in football, everything is complicated by the presence of the opposite team, right? And you can draw out the plan and you can decide the program and, you know, this is your, this is your, your, your strategy. And of course, the moment you start playing, you haven't told the other side your strategy. So they're going to come <laughs> up and completely mess it up. Right? And, and I think, yeah, I think this is, you know, Mike Tyson used to say, you know, strategy is what you have until you take the first punch on the nose and then it all goes out the window, right? So you know, you can have the vision of how you're trying to, to create something or which direction you're trying to go in. But we live in a world now that is the rate of change of change itself is getting faster and faster. You know, we use Uber as a, as a noun and a verb now. And, and businesses are being Ubered because it just means that, you know, what, what we used to do for 100 years, it just isn't being done again. And, and, and I think one of the big differences that technology has brought in recent times, and I'm talking in the past sort of five years, is in the history of man, going back from sort of putting a wheel on something to make it roll and putting a, you know, making a plow dr um, dragged by, a, by an ox and then replacing that by a tractor. And so all of these things are, are developments in technology that's always been about how do I do that better, cheaper, faster, easier, less painful. It, you know, it's all about doing the same thing with improvements. And in the last five years, technology has been about how do I not need to do that again, right? And this is a massive difference in, in, in how we need to think because our brains are not evolving as fast as technology is evolving. So we're still thinking about things in this kind of 1% improvement thing. And yet what we should be saying is, you know, let, let's just find a way not to need to do that. And this is a really, really important point about technology. And, and I think, you know, when we, when we look back at sort of success and failure in our life, you know, I, when, when you do sort of these MBA um, courses and stuff, what they do is they take out these case studies, you know, that how did Porsche react when, the, when the, uh, the dollar rose against the German, you know, the Deutsche Mark back in 1970, whatever. And like, who cares? 
right? It's a great case study for that time, but it will never happen again like that. You know, the, all, all the technology that we have in place now, just you will never have that situation again. So having a case study other than just simply studying as a piece of interest rather than learning something to apply to the future, it's a waste of time because the future is so different to the past now. And so, you know, that I think is, is again, why we need to have a slightly different approach to, to the way we, we educate, you know, right from children through universities, through sort of college and everything, because we're not teaching kids to be adaptable. You know, the average 14-year-old today will have 40 jobs in their life. Sorry, repeat that bit again. The average 14-year-old today will have 40 jobs in their life. Wow right? Wow. Probably in up to four different industries, right? So we don't train them for that. We don't train them to be adaptable. You know, Darwin didn't say that the, the, the biggest or the strongest or the richest or the fattest or the, or, the, or, the, or the fastest will survive. He said the most adaptable will survive. And we're in, we're in the most Darwinian sensitive environment in, in the world's history, because unless you re- recreate and adapt minute by minute, second by second, you're more likely to be a dinosaur than, than you were 10 million years ago. Wow. That brings me on to something you said, very, something very interesting. What's, what's your view on uh, machine learning and AI? How soon or how soon, first of all, it's going to replace the jobs? And secondly, where do you see that going? Well, I think, again, this is part and parcel of, of you know, what I was talking about because you know, we're quite used to Uber now, but Uber um, you know, is, has been a, a piece of software that's replaced thousands of, of you know, black cab drivers' jobs, um, for example, in London, or yellow cab drivers in New York, but on the same time as created jobs. And what's happening, you, know, you see a lot of Uber drivers that are, that are effectively ex-bankers, right? Because there's just so many you know, redundant bankers and there's just not enough jobs for bankers anymore because it's all automated. So they become Uber drivers. Now, quite frankly, that's not going to last that long because we're going to have driverless cars. And then you're going to have a bunch of Uber drivers that are going to be jobless, right? So, you know, that's part of this adaptability. You know, that's why people are going to have so many different roles in so many different careers, because the, the, this, this, this constantly redefining value is going to be um, more and more prevalent. And, um, and I think that, you know, machine learning is just simply uh, the natural next step. You know, technology is like toothpaste. You know, once, once you've invented something, you can't uninvent it. Right. So once you squeeze the toothpaste tube, it ain't going back in. So, you know, you better either use it or it's going to be wasted. So, you know, but it's, you know, you can't uninvent technology. So even things like, you know, trying to put regulation around it is only a temporary measure. It's only a, you know, trying an attempt to slow down technology. But, you know, we're at that point now where I think it's at 2025, you know, that a computer will be more powerful than a human brain in terms of computational power. And by 2030, a computer will be more powerful than all the human brains on the planet. So if you look at the, 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 pro, the, the speed of change, you know, you, you, it's inevitable that, that actually AI is, because part of AI will say, all the things that I need to learn to invent myself as a computer better, I will do. So we get to this amazing place where, you know, um, Hal in, in, in Space Odyssey, was, you know, became such a powerful sort of um, computer that he, he decided he was going to prevent himself being turned off because that was, you know, he, he learned that that was a negative thing to be turned off. So 
he stopped them turning himself off. And I can see that happening. You know, I think, I think we're very close to that now. You know, in the next 10 to 15 years, that's where we are. So, so the, again, what do we do when, when computers are more intelligent than us? I mean, if you look at someone like a, uh, a lawyer, so 99% of, of law is case reference, right? Sure. And, and so, you know, a, a good lawyer is someone that knows a ton of cases or can research a ton of cases. Well, imagine that you know every single detail of every single case in the history of law across the globe, and you can access it like that. Well, that's going to be a better lawyer than than a human being that has failures and emotions and all of these things. Now, you know, so the legal profession is going to be mass- massively impacted by, by AI. You know, so, so all of these different industries and, 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 and functions are going to be massively improved, but also the disruption it's going to cause, the jobs it's going to, it's going to redefine is, is going to be quite significant. So, so someone who's, who's leaving university or, uh, you know, has been in a corporate job for a while or is thinking of starting a business or what do they do? Where do they begin? What advice would Michael give them? So very often when we think about technology, we think about the technology first and then try and find a need. And what I can tell you is that there is as enough technology out there to do anything you like. The biggest thing that we, we lack is, is creativity in fixing the solutions. And if I come back to you know, the, the typical way we start thinking about something in every business, and it's like, okay, um, that's really great, but in, in order to eke out one more percent of margin, I've got to do it faster, or I've got to do it cheaper, or, rather than thinking, you know what, I shouldn't need to do that, right? And so that mentality, forget the technology, the mentality of saying, how do I fundamentally change the dynamics of something? Right? And then once you've, once you've established the, what people would, would be willing to pay for in a business model, then the technology will be there to fix it for you. I mean, if you, if you look at you know, any, any concept that you think about in, in life, the hardest thing that we, we have is trying to find a solution. And, and we, we, our mind goes back into the stereotypes that we've created. So, you know, Anything you think of that's a pain in the neck, we, we try to, f- to improve the pain rather than just say, let's just not do that. It's really, it's really a different way of thinking. It's quite hard to do, actually. But I would suggest that, that anybody starting a business starts with, when you get up in the morning, what's a pain in the neck for you? Right? What, what just, you didn't enjoy in your day yesterday. And if you can fix that, the chances are there's millions of other people that didn't enjoy the same thing. So if you can fix that type of dynamic, then you've got a business. Michael, who do you look up to? Who's an entrepreneur or someone you look, look up to in your field or in your industry? Or it could be generally that you think, wow, this person is the game changer. That's the benchmark. That's the next level up for me. Well, I think so. So it's quite interesting that um, I'll, give you, I'll give you one in industry and one out of industry sort of inspirational characters for me. Obviously, Steve Jobs comes up every time you ask people this, but, but he, he, he wasn't a nice guy. He was a, he was a brilliant innovative entrepreneur, but he was a rubbish leader and he was a rubbish um, human being basically. And he was a rubbish family man. And, and, you know, the other one is Nelson Mandela, who is an incredible inspiration in terms of, you know, leadership. He, he changed the country, but his kids were fighting over his legacy before he was dead. He was divorced twice. He was a philanderer. And so, so, you know, and, and, and in my second book, which is Live, Love, Work, Prosper, I talk about the fact that Work-life balance is impossible if you're really going to work hard. If you're really going to want to excel at one or the other, you will fail at the other one, right? So if you try to make a work-life balance, 
and you are driven, like Mandela was driven for a cause, you fail at the home there. And Steve Jobs was, was, was brilliant, uh, but he failed at the home there. And th- but there is a way to forget trying to make a balance in the first place and have work-life integrated, okay? So that you live your work and you work your life. And, and if, you can, if you can find the way to do that, and it's, it's easier for certain applications than others, but if you can find a way to do that, then you, you don't have to stop doing one to start doing the other, right? It's permanent. And that means that you don't have to compromise, right? And so right. you'll find there that, that, that you, you, can, you can enjoy both a kind of a very driven day job and a very driven life as well. If you were... Um... If you were to do what you did with the leaders in your TED talk, talking about change and getting them together, so you have Steve Jobs and you have Nelson Mandela, and you have to take them away, what what would you do? Would you put them in a shark tank? <laughs> well, the first thing would I'd, I'd take them to dinner and get them really drunk because they must have incredible stories to share. Um, and um, getting people drunk seemed to have a, a common was a common strand in my uh, in my leadership roles because it broke down barriers. I mean, when, um, when, I, uh, when, when I merged, so the, the Shark Tank thing was about um, people really worried about their jobs because I was merging two companies. I told them I was merging two companies together and these were big competitors of each other. Um, and, you know, everyone sees merging as two jobs, one, one, you know, one job, two people. So it's, you know, it's, there's going to be synergies there. Therefore, someone's going to be unemployed. And I said, look, forget that. It's this, you know, let, let's embrace this as a great opportunity. But they wouldn't have it. They wouldn't have it. So the, the, the whole shark thing was I took them up to, um, to this uh, indoor aquarium up in Scotland. And it's a massive, massive place. And you have, because it's down by the sea, you have the impression that you're actually in open water. And they thought they were going for a whiskey tasting in Scotland. So they, you know, they, they were a bit worried about the, getting the wetsuits on. But I, once they started to get two by two into the water, they saw these shark fins and there was, no, there was no cages, no, no nets. This was completely open with the sharks. And they were within you know, 18 inches of people. And when they got out, I said, how did you feel? And, and the first thing they said was, well, I hated you before I got in. I couldn't believe you were doing this. And you know, I, wanted to, I wanted to resign. And, and I said, well, how did you feel while you were doing it? And they said, well, it was really exciting. Um, I was still scared, but I was really excited. And I said, how did you feel when you came out? And they said, oh, amazing experience. So happy I did it. Don't want to do it again, but, you know, really happy I did it. And I said, okay, so every time you, you confront something in life that you, you're afraid of, first of all, fear is an illogical emotion because we don't fear the past and we don't really fear the present because we're dealing with it. We fear the future. And we always interpret the future to be worse than it generally is because that's our psyche to sort of prepare us for the worst and everything else. And in reality, if you can do something to improve the future, we should do it. If there's nothing you can do to improve the future, well, there's nothing you can do, so don't worry about it, right? So either way, worrying is like paying interest on a debt you haven't drawn down. So, so forget the whole sort of fear and worry thing and just get on with life. And, and, and so they brought that as a message. But when I brought them together, there was still kind of a them and us to certain people. So some of them brought the team, you know, they all came on, on board. And some of them, having been from two very, very competing entities for so many years, just couldn't sit around the same table as the others. So I took them to the North Pole. And in the North Pole, we, we, we went to a thing called the Ice Hotel. If you've ever been to that, it's, it's truly amazing. They make it every year out of blocks of ice from the, from the fjords and in, 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 in the lakes in the, in the North Pole. And 
um, it's minus 50 degrees, right? So it's incredibly cold. You go there and they, you know, the, they have bedrooms in this igloo and the, the beds are ice, the tables are ice, the chairs are ice, the glasses are ice, everything is made of ice. And so uh, I took them there and we went to the vodka bar and we were drinking vodka. So again, alcohol getting quite, uh, <laughs> quite, quite a primary role in this, and which brings people's barriers down a little bit. And once everyone was, was well, uh, well vodkaed up, I, t- I, I gave them uh, the, the sleeping arrangements for the evening and all the ones that, the problem with, with the ice hotel is you have to sleep two per bed for body warmth. Right. Okay. And so the ones that didn't like each other, I made them sleep together, <laughs> and they were the best of friends in the morning. And and the reason they were the best of friends in the morning was because the one thing that they don't have made of ice in an ice hotel is a toilet, because obviously it'll be yeah. out. So if you need the loo, which obviously all of them did because they've been drinking all night, then they have to go outside and dig a hole and go to the toilet outside. So the problem with that is at minus fifty degrees in the dark, you're not allowed to go outside on your own. You have to go with someone else. In case you slip and bang your head, you'll be, dying, you'll be dead with hypothermia in 20 minutes. So if you needed the loo, you had to wake the guy up that hates you and say, <laughs> you come out with your torch, please, and just shine it on me while I, I do my business. And then we can come back in and I can warm my feet on your bottom. So, you know, that, that's, the, that, that's the kind of way to, to break these barriers down. So I think, you know, alcohol does have a tremendous value and benefits to, uh, to some of these uh, leadership programs. Wow. <laughs> So, Michael, what's the next thing for you? What's the next big thing for you? You pretty much achieved most people dream of um, and, and want to. Uh, so what's the next big thing for you? Well, I, you know, I, I feel um, more and more of my life is now, is now giving back. And I'm quite passionate about children's charities in particular. You know, I was born on the wrong side of the tracks. I was, um, you know, my father was, uh, was in prison when I was born. I ended up getting out to Africa in the middle of a civil war. I was petrol bombed four times shot at about 13 times, one of them got me in the leg. And, you know, then lived back in a squat in, in Stockwell in London when I came back with nothing. And we used to uh, uh, live hand to mouth for, for two years before I got the apprenticeship. And, and so, and any of those different times, plus any of the times that I've spoken about subsequently in my business, you know, with the toss of a coin, it could have ended up very differently. So for me, you know, I, I feel quite um, embarrassed about how much luck I've had to, to get to where I've been. So you can't, you can't force people to do things, but you can certainly give them opportunities to take advantage of if they can. And so for me, um, education is extremely important. Education, empowerment, and welfare of children is my kind of my core ang- angles. And that I range from, um, I sleep in the streets every year for um, Action for Children. There's 60,000 homeless children, believe it or not, in, in the UK, which is wow. a amount. And, you know, getting them back into a system, you know, the moment they've run away from their parents, there's a reason they've done that, right? And, and they're, they're, they're homeless for a certain period of time. They take a, they're taken advantage of. And, and very often, you know, before long, it's beyond repair. So you've, you've got to get them back into, into a sort of a structured, protected environment. I, I trekked across south, southern India um, to build a, a refuge in a slum in Mumbai for traffic girls because they were being pulled out of the slums you know, where there was no street lighting, 70,000 people live in, a, in one slum with six toilets in one corner. And so, you know, the chances of, of you know, just being dragged away at last minute is, is, is it's horrible, but that's happening. So building an environment where they can um, get reintegrated, getting the street lighting working, these little things, they, you know, people think that these, these issues are too big and, and they are massive issues, but you've got to start somewhere to fix them. So I did 40 marathons in 40 days for the Prince's Trust 40th anniversary. 
two years ago, which was quite challenging. And uh, I'm, I'm walking to um, the South Pole this year to raise money for children with brain tumors. So that, that, you know, it's a five, nearly 500 mile walk with pulling your own sleighs. And there's only a, less than half a dozen of us doing this. So it's going to be quite a challenge for four weeks. And I'm privileged enough to be able to take four weeks to do these sorts of things. Whereas, you know, had I not been fortunate in my business life, then I, I wouldn't be able to do those, those charitable things. Wow, wonderful. And then how can people connect with you and find out what you're doing and how they can contribute? Um, well, I have a, a website. Um, it's uh, www.michaeltobin.online. And uh, that gives uh, people an idea of the sort of things I'm doing on there. I'm sure there'll be very soon, we'll be setting up a Just Giving page for the, um, for the Antarctic program. And there's all, all sorts of other things in there that they can, they can you know, participate with um, and also get inspiration from. And I think that you know, as well as the 17 non-exec boards that I sit on and the, my third book that I'm writing now, which is a history of the internet across Europe over the last 25 years, the, the charitable work is important, but also you know, I do a bit of mentoring. Um, so I probably mentor half a dozen people as well that, that you know, I just spend an odd hour here and there and just give them someone to, to, to bounce ideas off. You know, it costs me nothing to do these things. And, and if, it can, if it can create a better environment, then why not? Oh, brilliant. Any, any last words before we end the show? Well, I think, you know, one, one key thing that I would um, recommend for everybody to do in terms of starting off their careers and, and you know, entrepreneurs and, and getting into the thick of things for the first time. When I was 16 and I got my letter that I had, I got my apprenticeship. And remember in those days, there was no internet, there was no email, it was a proper hard letter. And I was sitting on the, on, on the bench in, in uh, Bond Street tube station and there was an old man sitting next to me who I'm sure couldn't even read the letter that I was reading, but he could see the smile on my face. And um, he, he, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, he said, son, always go the extra mile because there's less traffic there. Okay. And wow. this is something that's extreme, it's stayed with me ever since. And, 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 and what it means in a, in a different way is success in my, in my book is, is more defined by your ability simply to keep going than it is to be successful at any given time. Success isn't permanent and failure isn't fatal, right? And, and in our house, we, we don't have the word failure. We don't have the word failed or, or, or I made a mistake. You either succeeded or you learned. Both of those are very valuable because you can't succeed every time without learning what, what made it successful and therefore what doesn't, right? So success and learning is the way to look at things. And each time you have a hurdle that, that you fall down on, that is simply a learning process that makes you better for the next one. And you're not the only one hitting those hurdles. So the more hurdles you hit, the more differentiation you're making between you and the competition. Right. Okay. So if we look at what we perceive as failure, as much as a positive as we see success, then A, we'll be happier, B, we'll be more successful, and B, we will treat learning in, in many different ways. So I would leave, leave your listeners with that comment. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on, Michael. You've been a great guest. Absolute pleasure. Good luck with it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Only the Brave Have Fun. I hope you got some great value and insights from this episode. If, and if you're someone who wants to transition from being an employee to an entrepreneur, then I have some great free resources for you. If you visit www.jazzbearaurora.com, that's www.jazzbearaurora.com, and drop me a line, I will send you an ebook and also a one hour masterclass. And also um, go and take the skill.
escape the 9 to 5 survey, uh, which will help you understand where you are right now um, and where the gaps are in your knowledge to transition from being an employee to an entrepreneur. And if you're a business and you need help growing or if you have any uh, issues that you'd like to discuss, then yeah, once again, visit the website and I'll be more than happy to help you. Thank you for listening.